And isn't it great to have God's Word and look at it together? We're going to do that um, in Mark chapter 9. So if you have a Bible with you, you could be turning to Mark's Gospel in chapter 9. Uh, read a few verses in a moment from verse... Th- oh, where am I going to start? Uh, verse 30. Um, Okay, here we, we go. I'll read together. You can fo- if you don't have a Bible, don't worry. The scripture references will come up on the screen as well, so you can, uh, you can follow them there. It says there, They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were, because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they'd argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child and had him stand among them, taking him In his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Teacher, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he is not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. I tell you the truth. Anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. There we go. That's our, our passage today. We'll work our way through um, this various, these various conversations that Jesus had with his disciples. I'd like to begin with uh, just praying and bring this whole time before the Lord again. Father God, I want to thank you so much for Jesus. I want to thank you for your son. I want to thank you for your word, and I want to thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have seen fit to, uh, down through millennia, preserve for us words that are alive, that are powerful, that are life-changing, that are solid rock. You encourage us, Lord Jesus, to, to dig down and build foundations on solid rock. Well, here it is. That's what we want to do today, Lord Jesus. Uh, is to consider your word, have it affect our lives as we play our part in your kingdom. So come and help us uh, for the rest of this morning, uh, Lord Jesus, to, to be strengthened in our faith and to encourage one another to, to live that faith out, to work it through uh, in all areas of life. Lord Jesus, what, what I share this morning, I pray, uh, Lord, that you would multiply it like bread that was broken and dished out, Lord God. I pray that as we look at your word this morning, it would, it would, um, it would be highlighted um, and you would uh, bring life to my words that they'd be helpful for, for us to consider together. Amen. Amen. Here we have uh, Jesus, again, very much focusing on time with his disciples. We, when we were last in, um, in Mark's Gospel together, we, we read this, the previous lengthy chunk where uh, there's a boy who is influenced in some way by a demon that brings about muteness and seizures, and we see Jesus healing. It's a wonderful demonstration of his authority over 
evil and over suffering. Nevertheless, in some senses, I think the reason that Mark would captures it there for us is for us to see the conversations that take place between Jesus and his disciples. Jesus is wanting to train the disciples. Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem. He knows what's lying ahead in Jerusalem. He knows there's not loads of time and he's choosing to to invest and train and correct um, and teach his disciples. So what we see here as they as they move on from that power encounter um, is we see that Jesus' teaching is, is done in private. He's keeping a low profile as he travels through Galilee. He was well known. He could have easily gathered a crowd there. Um, but he's keeping a low profile. He's not trying to be in two places at once. He's not trying to do two things at once. He knows for this moment his priority is to teach his Disciples. He's not feeling guilty or pressured to be doing a thousand other things. He's focusing on them. His teaching is private. His teaching also, well, looks anyway, it would seem to be unsuccessful at this point anyway, because yet again, the disciples are failing to understand uh, what he's uh, saying to them. He's trying to get things uh, through. Perhaps they would, well, They'd understand the concepts, what it, would mean, you know, what it means to be betrayed, to think that someone's your friend but they, they turn you in, they, um, they turn against you. They would understand that, surely, they would understand death. We might think, well, they wouldn't understand resurrection, they had no clue about resurrection. Well, that might be true, it was a, a fairly foreign concept um, to... In, to to, to think that someone might be um, resurrected before the very end of history. Oh yeah, sure, that will happen one day, at the very end of history. But right, no, it doesn't really happen in, in the middle of history. Well, actually, they've seen Jesus raise other people um, to life. They've, they've seen Jesus uh, come to a little girl and say, I tell you, little girl, get up. And she was dead. But he, uh, he raised her up again. So they could perhaps understand the words understand the concepts, but not how they could possibly apply to Jesus. Well, sure, Jesus, we understand that you can raise people to new life, but if you're dead, that's not gonna, who's going to do that to you? It, it, it confounds their understanding completely. They are not early adopters. They're not kind of ready, poised to believe, and in some respects, now sat here in the 21st century, that can be quite helpful to understand. The disciples are saying time and time again through Mark, "For so long, we didn't get it. We weren't quick to understand. We weren't quick to believe. We weren't kind of poised on the edge of our seats. Oh, I hope it's all true." It's like anybody a sci-fi fan, anyone own up to ever going to a science fiction convention, hoping to meet all of your Oh, I saw a wry smile, possibly with Andy Bond, but I won't press him right now. <laughs> Who knows? One of my favourite films is actually a, a film called Galaxy Quest, which begins uh, with loads of sci-fi geeks going along to a convention. And you can kind of imagine meeting um, Captain... K- yeah, James T. Kirk. I'm getting myself mixed up. The captain of the, uh, of the USS Enterprise, boldly going where no one has ever gone before. And you bump into, you meet... William Shatner, the actor who played him, and 
you go up to his table and you ask him to, to sign your, your, the photo and then he just leans over you, over to you and says, Star Trek, it's all true. Yes, I knew it. You know, can you, just like really super gullible response. I, I, I was just really ready and on the front. Well, the disciples aren't like that. Um, they're not kind of poised to, to believe it all. They're, they're like just struggling to get their heads around it. So that's why this private teacher, it needs to be repeated. He's going over the same ground. Jesus has already predicted his, his, his death and resurrection before. Back in chapter 8, verse 31. There for the first time he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and after three days rise again. He's begun to predict what's about to happen um, in Jerusalem. This is often referred to as the, the second prediction of the passion, or the second prediction of the death and resurrection of Jesus. If you like, actually, he's been referring to it at other moments in, uh, as well when he gathered a big crowd to him um, in chapter 8, verse 34. He said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Well, surely that's a big clue about what was to, what was to come. Uh, and coming down the mountain, he's talking with uh, three of his disciples. Uh, he gave them orders not to tell anyone uh, what they had uh, seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. There again, this another prediction. But here we have it, plain as day, Jesus saying, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days, they will rise again. This is going to happen. They don't understand. They need to hear again. That can be encouraging for us. Teaching is about more than just receiving some information. Learning is about more than just being able to answer a question or, or write down. or It's not just a memory test about what you can recall. The Christian faith um, is not just an intellectual exercise. And teaching is therefore, it's more than just passing on information. It takes a while to learn values. It takes a while to see th- learn to see things completely differently. And the disciples will need to do that because the, they're going to see that the kingdom of God is totally upside down from the way that they were thinking, that the world thinks. Um, who's familiar with uh, Mr. Men stories? And do you have a favorite Mr. Man character? I would... I would be tempted towards Mr. Strong or Mr. Tickle. I just think that's got to come in. Long art, anyway, we won't go there. But who remembers, and I know there are little misses too, who remembers Mr. Topsy Turvy? Yes, what a peculiar man. Um, he wears a hat, but the hat is upside down. He has a walking stick, but the walking stick is, is upside down. I think he walks backwards. He's, he's, everything looks completely the wrong way around. Whenever he does something or whenever he says something, it seems completely the wrong way around. So there's a sign outside his house saying, sale for house, because he has a house for sale. So this is all, this is all jumbled up. And I think we can understand the disciples at this point. I think this is all totally jumbled up. Jesus, what are you talking about? And previously, Peter is 
tried to correct Jesus. What are you talking about, Jesus? This must never happen to you. But no, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. That's precisely the point. So often we have in mind the things of men. The, wa- the ways of the world. Worldly values. And Jesus is coming to his disciples and saying, no, it's, look, you've got to see that in my kingdom, it's completely the other way around. And if we could sum up what Jesus is teaching through these various different conversations and encounters... It's the kingdom value of humility. And we're going to see how Jesus models this himself. The disciples misunderstand, and so he, he, he teaches them. But it's, it turns the world's way of doing things and the world's way of thinking completely on its head. Jesus models for us humility and a completely different uh, value system in his kingdom. So he says the son of man. He describes himself the, the son of man. Who is the son of man? Well, if you look, and we've looked possibly a few times in, uh, in the book of Daniel, uh, where we've seen that, that phrase where it originates. If you're, you turn to the left, if you get to Ezekiel and Jeremiah like me, you've gone too far. If you're still in uh, the minor prophets like Habakkuk or someone else like that, you haven't gone far enough. Isn't it encouraging to know that someone who is involved in leading the church can't always find his way around the Bible himself? Um, Daniel chapter 7. We've uh, touched on this before. Uh, there Daniel receives a vision of hideous beasts um, representing other worldly kingdoms. Uh, they are monsters. And they are causing oppression and injustice, devouring their victims and trampling underfoot. We see that in the world around us. Uh, we, we've, we've heard uh, of what's taken place in Paris. Uh, just a, a horrific prime example of, of monstrous power uh, and, and the desire to, to kind of, well, to get ahead and to cause pain. How does Jesus... Come. Well, it's described here as uh, then Daniel in, in his vision at night in verse 13. He looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. There we have that phrase, the son of man. Um, and he's described there that he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. Well, that sounds awesome, doesn't it? Jesus, the son of man, the one and only. Son of man, chosen by God to be given all power, all authority. Uh, Nations and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. Yeah, wonderful. He's going to really sock it to them. And we can see through how all that the disciples have observed so far, how he's exercised his authority. He taught with authority. He healed and forgave with authority. He had the authority to appoint 12 apostles and, as it were, to to reform the people of God around himself, like uh, 12 new tribes. We've seen that he's had authority over the wind and the waves. We've even been kind of referring to that in that past 
song. He had the authority to say to the wind and the waves, stop, and they obeyed. Had the authority to speak to a legion of evil demons, and they fled. He had the authority um, to, to, to heal sickness and to resurrect someone from the dead. Had authority to multiply bread and fish. Had the authority over gravity and able to walk on water. I think, and this is all building up somewhere. Now the disciples could be thinking, now we've realized who Jesus really is. He's the Christ. He's, he's the Son of God. He's the Messiah. He's our rescuer. He's our deliverer. We can put all our confidence in him. And we're heading to Jerusalem. And everything we've seen so far, it's all building up to something. It's all a prelude to something. So what's going to happen there? The Son of Man, the one with all authority, is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. It's totally the wrong way around in the disciples' thinking. They'll be perhaps thinking, well, we'll get to Jerusalem. There'll be this popular uprising. There'll be celebrations in the street. Jesus will, will cleanse the temple. Um, and he'll be crowned king of the Jews. And there we'll, it will begin. He'll usher in a new eternal kingdom. We'll have... Uh, as his 12 apostles will have places of significance in this new kingdom that he's doing. Can you see? They'd have this, this grand image in mind of all of what was going to happen and how Jesus would overthrow. But he says, no, the Son of Man is coming to lay down his own life. It's huge irony. The one with all authority is betrayed into the hands of men. It sounds so passive. Jesus is going to allow things to happen to him. The one with all authority is going to allow himself to be handed over to people with earthly authority. Even submitting to their ungodly authority. It, it doesn't seem to make sense. How should we handle authority? Well, well, worldly values say that those in authority should take charge, assume control, call the shots... And tell other people what to do. But we see here the Son of God, the Son of Man, modeling authority humbly. The world celebrates forcefulness. It tells us to take charge. We we congratulate one another when we might get promoted because then we've got more authority. We've got more uh, influence. We've got more people who have to do the sorts of things that we say, oh, well done. And if it goes the other way and life takes a different turn, I've, got to, I've actually got to care for a family member. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm stepping back from all of those other opportunities because I'm giving myself here. We think, oh, oh no, that's not great. Obviously, no, no suffering is great. But oh, all, just think about all the lost opportunities. Think about all the things that person could have done, how they could have been really significant in the kingdom of God and, and really kind of risen up to a position of prominence. And that would really, that, yeah, that would, they'd be able to influence so many people. No, no, just caring. Just caring for my mum. Or I'm just caring for my wife. Or I'm just caring for my husband. Life's taken a change for us. We didn't see this coming um, but, you know, for better, for worse. Think, well, Jesus shows us a whole different model for greatness. My, the school motto that I had at school was turning potential into reality. Um, and it kind of sounds okay, a bit bland, to be honest. Um, that was 
that was their hope that through the school they would turn all of my potential into reality as if nothing should prevent me kind of going as far as I possibly can. Nothing can pre- must prevent me from realizing and fulfilling my, my greatest dreams and ambitions. What do we see of Jesus? Laying down his life, allowing himself to be subject to, to suffering, just choosing to work with 12 disciples. He could always have gathered a crowd, but focus down. In the workplace, I remember all the different training schemes that were available. One was assertiveness training. We live in a world that wants to train us to be assertive. Why? Because, well, maybe there's things to learn about just communicating, but kind of behind it, this subtle value of you should get what you want. And perhaps with a smile on your face, with a few kind of little ways of handling yourselves, you can do that. Get what you want with a smile on your face. Assertiveness training. You should assert yourself. You should make sure you get what you want out of life. We see a completely different way in the kingdom of God. How do we handle authority? Well, we've seen it here in Jesus. Humility means being gentle in how we handle the authority that we might have ourselves in whatever sphere uh, or spheres of life that uh, that involves, uh, in the workplace, in family life, um, in informal ways as well. In the kingdom of God, gentleness is celebrated in in Philippians chapter 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I say again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. What a strange thing to be really conspicuous. She's just so, so gentle in the way that she interacts with others. The world celebrates something uh, very different. But then Peter himself, one of his disciples, will, will write to husbands in 1 Peter chapter 3. Verse 7, he said, Husbands, be considerate with your wives. Be gentle. So often authority can be thought one way or another. I'm, I'm going to try and be nice about it, but I, I want what I want. I'm going to get what I want out of this. I'm going to get what I want out of this relationship or, or this opportunity. Be considerate. Be humble. Humility leads to gentleness. Leads to respectfulness, respect, in how we respond to other people's authority, even ungodly. Here's an amazing example from the scripture. Again, in the book of Daniel, which I should have kept bookmarking myself a few pages earlier in the book of Daniel, chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon has, um, has set up a golden image and a rule that whenever the music plays, everyone must bow down and worship this image. And we've got Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. Actually, those were their Babylonian names. Um, um, I think they're Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, really. But um, they're serving in, in Nebuchadnezzar's court. This rule comes... How are they going to respond to the authority of Nebuchadnezzar by just 
doing what he says. I'm not going to be submissive in that way, not on this account, not on this occasion, because this runs completely against the kingdom that they're a part of. Um, Nebuchadnezzar is absolutely furious with them for failing to follow his command. What's their response? They say in Daniel 3 verse 9, they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. Oh no, that's not the, let me come back to that. (laughs) Verse 16, still respectful. They replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. What is so often our reflex response when we're feeling wronged and hard done by and pressurized and got at? We do not need to defend ourselves in this matter before you. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar. See this, this gentleness? See this respect? If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. See how they handled that um, situation so boldly. That's not weakness. That's not cowardice. That's not being limp. It's strong. Now, where does that strength to be humble come from? Where does that strength to be gentle come from? Where did it come from for Jesus? Well, he would say, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. We said, well, yes, Judas was going to do that. He was going to betray Jesus into uh, the hands of the Jewish authorities. And the Jewish Sanhedrin, they would deliver him. They did it. They were responsible. They passed him over to the Roman authorities. What did the Roman authority, what did Pilate do? Pass them on to the, uh, to the executioners. Jesus was, was handed over. It was them who were doing it. But what Jesus understands, what these disciples would one day come to understand, is in, uh, we see in Acts, uh, My notes at this point could have been better. <laughs> um, we see in the book of Acts when Peter preaches. <coughs> later on in the coffee break, you can remind me where the verse is. <laughs> he was delivered over to you. He's responding to the Jewish leaders around him. Jesus was delivered over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. Who did the delivering? God. I'm trusting my heavenly father, is what Jesus was saying. That's what enabled him to demonstrate such humility with the authority that he had. Not taking charge, taking force, I'm going to do it. He said, actually, I'm I'm going to trust God to the extent I'm going to allow myself to be killed. I can't do much then. I'm trusting that my heavenly father will uh, raise me up. It's only possible 
by trusting him. The disciples, briefly, would go on to misunderstand. It would take a while for them to grasp what Jesus was getting at. They would need to have it taught. They'd need to have it modeled. They'd need to have it demonstrated. They'd have an object lesson. They needed Jesus to correct their arguments. We see it in a number of ways, how they misunderstood. Firstly, well, the disciples start arguing about greatness. They've just heard what Jesus has been teaching. Their response is silence. Maybe that's because they understand enough to be afraid to ask more. I don't really think I like the sound of this. They could have easily thought to themselves. But it kind of bubbles up from them anyway at other times. The fact that they don't understand. When they start arguing amongst themselves as to who's the greatest. You think, well, how did that come about? Well, they're on a journey. It's not some big highway. Probably a narrow path. Walking single file. It would be customary for the rabbi to be leading the way. No one would dare just kind of walk shoulder to shoulder with their rabbi, but they'd have to walk behind anyway. So a big long line of, of 12 disciples following Jesus and that sense of, no, I, I should be further forward. Maybe it was like that, a simple squabble about getting to the front. Let me through. Um, and uh, Jesus is obviously aware you know, of what, what was happening. So he asks the question when they get into, into, into private, they get into a house, sat down. What were you arguing about on the way? Again, silence. They don't understand, but they know enough to be a bit embarrassed. Wanting to get ahead means pushing others back down the line. And uh, unkind criticism, gossip, negativity, accusations. Have you heard about, have you heard what they've done, have you heard what they said? If you heard what they're like, let me tell you a little bit about them so that you aren't fooled by their show of godliness. I know better than that. Let me tell you. you know, all of that, is, we're trying to climb up an imaginary league table. Getting ahead means pushing others back. It's just inevitable. Pushing others down with criticisms and gossip and negativity kind of acts like a bit of a smoke screen. I feel insecure. I'm afraid. And I'm trying to hide that by pointing out, maybe quite subtly, um, other people's failings. Maybe it happened like that, this narrow path where they're squabbling to get ahead. Maybe they're just having a conversation recounting recent events. And the three, Peter, James and John, can say, well, well, we were up the mountain. We, We were taken up the mountain. That must mean that we're more special. That must mean that we're the focus of his affection in the way that you you guys... You nine simply aren't. We, we see it now. A hierarchy is developing. Don't you understand? So, so we were there. You, you were down the mountain. And you were failing. Because you couldn't drive out that evil spirit from the little boy. Move over. We're coming through. Uh, could have been their, um, their approach. They're kind of neatly airbrushing out of the story, aren't they? The fact that actually up the mountain, they, they weren't like glowing by any means. Oh, Jesus, should we build some shelters? No. <laughs> Listen to him. They're misunderstanding as well. But they can airbrush that conveniently out of the story and boast about their spiritual experience. This is what God's done for me. This is what I've, I've been, this is what's been happening for me. I must be more special. And when people, when, I love it. 
I've spotted it myself recently. Our prayers being answered. Even Tom, when he was preaching, sharing last week about what, uh, how God has intervened for, for Ellen and um, in bringing healing and uh, more liquid in the, in the womb, thinking, I hope people realize I was praying about that. I hope this reflects well on me somehow. I think, oh, what a load of baloney. The fact is, we're together. And we as a family have been praying about something, and God has heard our prayers. Pride talks about me and I and my experience. Humility talks about us and we and God and what he's done and him getting credit for things. So Jesus comes up against this this argument they're, ha- they're, they're having. Um, he teaches with it, teaches them, sits them down. If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. No one wants to be last. But look, Jesus is not squashing the desire for greatness. He's just turning it completely on its head. What you've thought is greatness is pride. Let me show you that humility is right. Now, false humility is still trying to muscle through on an imaginary league table. We're trying to outdo one another. We're still captive to comparisons. Um, if we're not careful, I hope I'm more humble than they are. Ridiculous. Um, we can bounce like a yo-yo from, from arrogance. I'm doing really, really well at the moment. So, oh, self-pity. Back up again, down again. Back up again, down again. No, forget about it completely. Jesus gives us a model. Not pushing himself forward, but being the servant of all. Genuine servant-hearted leadership. That's what he's doing right now. He's serving his disciples. He's putting their needs first. He's talking about what's going to happen to him, but it's for their benefit. It's to help them. It's to prepare them for what comes ahead. He uses a visual aid, if you like. He gets a, a child from the house. Look, you're, so, you're so concerned about your position amongst each other. You're so concerned about how much influence you have or what prominence or what role you have. You're totally ignoring in the house we're in right now is this little one. And he goes and gets a little child. They all knew who he was or she because they're sat down in a house. Maybe it was Simon Peter's house. Gets a child, brings right center stage and says, not at the moment, be like the child, that will come later. What he's saying is, what's your attitude towards the very lowest in our society? That may not be the case now. Children might not be regarded as the very lowest in society. I think that was the case then. Oh, sorry, who? What? So worried about position, worried about greatness. Jesus is not. So he's ready to to welcome, be hospitable to the very youngest. What does he say? Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Oh, I want to get closer to Jesus. I want to be higher up the ranking order, higher up the pecking order. It's totally counterproductive. Welcome God by welcoming Jesus. Welcome Jesus by welcoming welcoming those whom the world would put down on the very lowest rung. An amazing, amazing teaching, amazing um, model to follow. 
At this point, the disciples still don't get it, but they would get it. They would learn humility by seeing that God is in control. Ah, there we go. Rescued by my notes. It was, in fact, Acts chapter 2, verse 23. When Peter stands up and speaks, he says to the crowd, This man was handed over to you, speaking of Jesus, by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. God is in control. That's what Jesus knew. I'm going to lay my life down. I have the authority to do that. I have the authority to take it back up again. I'm trusting my heavenly Father. And the disciples would come to see that as well. Humility. We can see it and then not see it. We can attain it and then get proud for attaining it. But we're led to... A humility that means we're gentle with one another. We're respectful. Submissiveness is not weakness. It's not being passive. It's actually in this situation, I'm trusting God. It means that we're seeing ourselves as a community that others are welcomed into rather than sharply divided lines. Later on, John will recount. You kind of wonder, was this because John was, was kind of owning up to his mistake, their mistake, or was John seeking congratulations when he said, well, we saw this guy, and we don't know him. He's not one of our group, but he was casting out demons in your name, Jesus. So we told him to stop. For him, the problem, or for them, the problem was just, well, he's not one of us. That's the way the Pharisees thought. Jesus is not one of us. So if he was worth listening to, he would already be with us. And he would be part of our little group. And then we pay attention to him. He's not one of us. So we just reject him. And that's what John and the disciples have been like. He's not in our group. Not in our church. Not in our sphere. Or just not part of an in-crowd. We told him to stop. They're feeling exposed, aren't they? So worried about their position. All these insecurities and fears going rampant inside them. Jostling for position amongst themselves. They've not got time for a child. Jostling for position amongst themselves. Hoping, I hope I come well out of this situation. And then they discover that somebody that nobody knows at all, and Jesus doesn't even know, personally, is more successful than they are been casting out a demon in Jesus' name. They couldn't do that a couple of chapters, a few verses ago. Humility would have led them to think, what can I learn from this guy I've never met before and who's not part of our group? Pride says, we told him to stop because he's not one of us. And we're the carriers of truth. And in all of our discipleship, in walking with Jesus, there are just some things to beware that we don't get sucked back in to the world's way of thinking, the world's way of doing things, the world's way of relating in a group like this. I hope I'm noticed. I hope I'm recognized. I think we're not trying to serve ourselves, but serve other, other people. We're not trying to get or keep for ourselves some special status or position. We're just delighted to serve. Just delighted to welcome people. 
demonstrating gentleness, trust in God, and a humility through it all. Amen. How about we worship God?